welcome to this episode of the Women in Foreign Policy podcast. This month, we're talking to some diplomats and to people who are involved with the diplomatic process, and we're going to learn a lot about how they go about their jobs, how they got into the field, some of the challenges that they've found in the field, and I'm really excited for you guys to hear the the conversations we've had this month because I think they're really interesting, and we're hearing from a really big, diverse group of people. One thing that you may notice is that we're dropping two podcasts simultaneously here. That's because not only do we speak to people who work as diplomats, whether for their government or for a non-governmental organization that works in the diplomatic sphere, we also got the amazing chance to speak with a woman who was married to a diplomat for several years and who got to work in her own field as well as living as a diplomatic spouse. We got to talk with her a little bit about how that experience looked and what that was like for her. And I'm really excited to be able to share both sides of that experience with people because I think that both sides of that experience are equally valid and equally important. And I'm really happy to to be able to bring that conversation to the forefront here. So without further ado, uh, I'm going to go ahead and begin this episode by letting our diplomats introduce themselves. My name is Leah Miller. I'm a public affairs officer um, and also a U.S. diplomat, which means I work for the U.S. Department of State as a foreign service officer. Public affairs is my chosen area of expertise, but within the State Department, I'm what is known as a generalist. And a generalist is basically an officer who has the ability to work in any one of the five main areas that belong to the traditional track of professionals that could rise to become a career ambassador. Um, And those five areas are um, political affairs, economic affairs, public affairs, management, which is more like kind of the logisticians and the people who make sure the embassy is running day to day so that all of our other colleagues can carry out their jobs. They have a very important role, in my opinion. They're kind of the backbone of the service because without them, the rest of us couldn't do our work. And then the fifth area is consular, which is helping American citizens when they need it. Uh, If, you know, they have a baby while they're overseas, the embassy will help them get a passport for the baby and get a birth certificate. If someone gets in trouble and they need, you know, to get in contact with their family back in the States or if they're arrested and they need legal representation, the embassy will do their best to help them, which leaves us with public affairs, which is my chosen area. Because instead of kind of doing more of a 50-foot view, looking kind of big picture what's happening in a country, I get to go down into the weeds and really get to know every strata and substrata of a society. And I'm working with the elites down to, you know, the man on the corner selling newspapers and everyone in between. I get to work in the rural areas, the urban areas. I work with the young. I work with professionals. I work with the elderly. Um... Through public affairs, we do a lot of um, exchange programs. We do a lot of cultural affairs programs, introducing various elements of American culture to the host nation and in turn sharing with American audiences some of the local culture in whatever country we're in. We offer a lot of English language opportunities. We look to offer opportunities for scholarships and small grants for entrepreneurs and small businesses and for students who have an interest in studying in the United States for college, but maybe they don't have the means or they come from humble origins. We try to fill the void to make it possible for them and not just for the elites who could get there on their own, but for people who need a little bit of help to kind of fulfill the the goals and things that they've set out to do among many other things. For me, I find that to be the most fulfilling because if I'm going to live overseas, 
I really want to feel like I know the place where I'm living and I know the people that I'm serving. And I really feel like public affairs is the best um, of the five areas to really know a place and to know a people and to also feel like what I'm doing makes a difference. Um, not only for the American public that I serve, but for the people whose lives I'm touching through my work. So for me, I kind of feel like I get a lot of fulfillment knowing that I may have left things better than I found them. And I've created opportunities that can really change the course of a person's life for the better. Hi, I'm Azra Zaya, and I am the CEO and president of the Alliance for Peacebuilding. And we are a global network of 120 plus organizations working to end violent conflict and sustain peace in 153 countries all over the world, including the United States. So I have been running the Alliance now for a little over a year. And before that, I spent um, most of my adult life as an American diplomat. Uh, I was um, quite active on leading US human rights policy, also involved in Middle Eastern, European, um, South Asian, and multilateral affairs. I, I had the good fortune to work uh, all over the world in those areas, including uh, serving as a diplomat in Syria, Egypt, uh, India, France, Oman, and um, Jamaica on my first assignment. And I have really been, I would say, on um, both sides of the fence in terms of working within government and working outside of government to help build a more just and peaceful world. And I'm really excited uh, to join your podcast and talk to you about women in foreign policy. Great. So I think the obvious first place to start here is um, learning from these people what their path was to becoming a diplomat and how they got to where they are today. Uzra had her own unique path to the field. Well, I, uh, my path to becoming a diplomat uh, definitely... Uh, was very much shaped by my university experience. Um, I attended uh, the Georgetown School of Foreign Service here in Washington. And I have to say, I, I made that choice to um, focus on international affairs at a, at a fairly young age. Um, my personal background, I think, was definitely a driving factor here, too. Uh, I'm a first-generation American. Very proud of that fact. I was the first person in my family born in the United States. Um, my parents immigrated um, to the U.S. from India in the 1960s. So I grew up in a bilingual household where, um, you know, from, from basically toddlerdom, I, I heard Urdu and, and English uh, intermingled uh, in my house and... Uh, I'm sad to say my Urdu abilities are probably stuck somewhere a little around the toddler level. I can understand it, but my spoken is not that great. And although I didn't have the opportunity really to travel extensively um, at a young age, I definitely had that opening to the world through my parents and uh, would talk about what was happening in India and in the Middle East and elsewhere and uh, really... Um, was one of those kids uh, very interested in learning foreign languages, uh, was a uh, model United Nations nerd, as we say in the States, and and took that decision at a young age when I was applying to colleges to, to focus on international affairs through Georgetown. Um, the other experience academically, I think, that um, was decisive for me in, in trying to pursue diplomacy as a career 
was studying abroad. Um, you know, here in the United States, there's kind of a tradition where often um, students their third year of university uh, might choose to spend a semester or two um, studying abroad. In my case, I, I went to Cairo, Egypt, and studied for two semesters at the American University in Cairo. That was my first experience uh, living extensively overseas, studying overseas, and I have to say I, I was hooked. Um, what's interesting then, and I think it's still true now, is when you're an American um, living abroad, inevitably, in some way, you are representing. Uh, you are questioned, you are asked to explain. Um, in many ways, you find yourself just continually trying to build bridges of understanding and, and particularly clearing up misperceptions or stereotypes. So the same ones, uh, sadly, I think are pervasive in the United States about um, countries beyond our borders. So being in that position, actually, I found it exhilarating. I found it um, sort of, want, I found myself wanting more. So my, my fourth year of university, I, I took the exam to join the U.S. Foreign Service, like like many diplomatic services, it's it's a merit-based system where you take a written exam, and if you make it past that hurdle, there's an oral exam and a, and a further um, review process. So I found myself actually joining um, our foreign service as a diplomat at a relatively young age, uh, age 22, uh, and at the time I was I was the youngest um, diplomat in the foreign service. Leah also talked about how she got into the field. One of the areas um, that the State Department, you know, always talks about, not only in, in terms of our policy priorities, but also in terms of the, the makeup of the people who reflect um, American culture is diversity and social inclusion. And that's one of the areas where I think the State Department and other agencies, too, it's not unique to the State Department, in the past really struggled with was diversity, they really didn't have a diversity in terms of ethnic origin or gender or really any other kind of diversity. When you think of big D diversity, it was almost always elite educated white men who kind of make up the historical ranks of the diplomatic corps. So in the mid, early mid nineties, a program was created in the department specifically to attract and to recruit people who otherwise qualified for diplomatic service, but who didn't necessarily fit the original cookie cutter of being an elite educated white male. They were looking for diversity in the broadest, in the broadest sense from getting more people from, you know, the Midwest because they, they historically, it seemed like people were really more from coastal areas um, to, so they have more regional diversity, different perspectives in that way to bringing in more women, bringing in more minorities, bringing in people from different socioeconomic classes, um, different religious backgrounds, you name it. And so I was fortunate to be a beneficiary of this program. It's the Thomas R. Pickering um, Foreign Affairs Fellowship Program. I applied. It's a very, very competitive program to get into. Um, it's so rigorous that, in fact, in, in recent years, if you qualify and you get into the program and you successfully complete the program, you do not need to take the written exam to enter into the foreign service career, you only need to take the oral examination before becoming, you know, part of the next orientation class of officers. Um, and that just sort of speaks to the rigor of the fellowship program. 
but the fellowship program alone has been able to make the State Department one of the most diverse government agencies um, in the interagency. And that is how I got my start. So I came in, you know, as a fellow, part of the fellowship program as you do an internship in Washington one summer. So you kind of get a sense of how things work in the headquarters and also from an interagency perspective. And then you spend another summer in an embassy overseas and get a sense of what it's like to be out in the field. And then from there, you begin your career as an officer, which I did. And so my internship in Washington was in what's known as the operations center, which is kind of like a crisis management center and a communications hub, kind of like the situation room in the White House. It's the State Department equivalent. And then my internship overseas was in Santiago, Chile in a public affairs section. So early on, I knew right away that public affairs was where I wanted to be. I felt like it was the best fit for me even though originally I came in politically coned since that's the traditional track of most foreign service officers. Um, from there, my first assignment was in Muscat, Oman, where I did public diplomacy and consular work. And then from there, I went to Nicaragua and did administrative, more management logistics work. From there, I studied Arabic for a couple of years before going to Tunisia, um, where my second year of Arabic study was taking place. And I was supposed to go to Libya, but then Arab Spring happened. And Libya no longer was a place that I could go safely. So I ended up remaining in Tunisia for another year before Benghazi happened and a series of coordinated attacks occurred across parts of the Middle East and North Africa, which eventually led me back to Washington, where I served in the main department of state for a few years and a variety of jobs before going back overseas again to Bolivia, where I got back into my bread and butter area of public affairs, where I worked on cultural affairs specifically which eventually led me now to being in Armenia, which is where I'm currently serving as the public affairs officer, um, managing the entire office that does all of our press and media outreach, social media management, messaging, speech writing, as well as all the cultural things that I had described earlier. And that's sort of the path that led me into the Foreign Service and has kept me there. The next question is, kind of an important one, I think, because a lot of people may default to seeing diplomacy as just something done by governments to other governments. And I think we need to have a much broader approach to the field and think of it in a much broader terms. So we asked, how do you define diplomacy? Azra defined it for us to begin with. I think you can define it many ways, but to me, uh, diplomacy is many things. It is the art of persuasion. Uh, it is the art of the possible in terms of uh, finding a way forward where one may not be readily evident. And it is also the art of listening and compromise. Um, ultimately, diplomacy is um, through human interaction, through the human element, finding uh, compromises um, common cause, perhaps where none existed, or perhaps where it did exist, but you can certainly strengthen it and make it more purposeful towards a greater good. And um, throughout my own career, and even my motivation for, for joining our diplomatic service, it really was an, an idealistic one. Uh, in a sentence, it was to, to try to help build a more just and peaceful world. And, and to me, the two, justice and peace, are, are really intertwined. And it is something where the American interest and the American 
national security interest, you could say, in a more secure, safer world is also, um, by default, it is a more just, it is a more sustainable, it is a more equitable world. And that was something, wherever I worked, um, I'm proud to say that um, that was the overriding sort of motivating principle behind um, the policies I pursued. And I think particularly exciting for, for you and, and your generation, you know, uh, I know it can seem quite daunting if you uh, go online and see what's happening. I was going to say open the newspaper, but <laughs> even that is a bit dated. Um, but think of it another way. You know, what is, what is the world that you seek to shape to confront these challenges? And that's a pretty exciting uh, question to answer. Leah had some interesting thoughts here as well. I mean, there's the technical definition, which is more like it's a professional activity where you manage international relations or you're kind of serving as a country's representative abroad. You're sort of the statesman of the United States. Um, But it's also an art. And I think it's also the art in terms of you're dealing with people in a sensitive but effective way. So you have to be able to kind of deliver maybe not so easy messages to a hostile audience or, you know, you have to, you know, have rough conversations with people, but you still have to say it in a way that they'll hear and understand. And in turn, you have to deliver messages back to your audience, you know, the American people and the American government that the host nation that you're in doesn't necessarily always agree with, you know, what you want to do, but you have to find a tactful way to effectively deliver messages, communicate them and try to make progress. Um, you know, and it's not always an easy thing to do. It can be quite challenging, especially in areas where we have had historical differences or cultural ones or in a, in a situation that's volatile internally. And then we're sort of just seen as another actor trying to get involved in internal affairs of another country. Um, it can be difficult, but for me, I believe it's more a combination of a profession where we represent you know, the United States interests abroad, but also an art in the sense that, you know, we're really dealing with people um, and you really just have to have, you know, a natural inclination towards emotional intelligence and really being a good listener and not always talking. You also have to receive messages, not just deliver them. And so for me, it's kind of a combination of those two things. And of course, this is the Women in Foreign Policy podcast. One of the things that we do talk about is how it is different to be a professional woman in a given field. We wanted to ask these women what particular concerns or issues they encountered as female diplomats and whether they felt like that was different from anything their male colleagues were experiencing. Leah gave us some really interesting food for thought. Well, I can say there's been a few. I mean, thankfully, I've been fortunate that I haven't had pretty really negative experiences. But I I would say, in addition to issues with me being a female in positions of authority, when I first entered into the career, I was also dealing with a lot of ageism as well. Because I came in, you know, basically right out of grad school in my early 20s. And I immediately would go out to a new embassy where I'm managing 50 people, half of whom are they've been working for as long as I've been alive. And here I come, this brand new person and a female into certain societies that are a little bit more, you know, um, patriarchal, or they have more of a machismo about them. And so, you know, seeing a woman in a position of authority, especially a woman who's kind of fresh into the arena, 
was hard for some people to deal with initially. And that's something that I had to manage because I still had to, I still had a job to do and I needed them to do that job with me. And so what I had to deal with was kind of just proving my value and proving my competence and my ability through my actions. I wasn't able to kind of walk in on day one and command all kinds of respect because just by virtue of who I was, they were already skeptical being young, being female and being a woman of color. You know, I kind of had like three strikes against me from the moment I stepped my first foot into the door of the office. But I think what ended up being a positive experience for me is that I didn't need to prove anything through words. I was able to show them pretty, pretty quickly that I was capable, competent, smart, willing to listen to them, willing to learn from them, really wanted and sought out regularly their, their guidance and their expertise to help me do my job, which in turn helped them do theirs. And we really developed um, a deep respect for one another. And we were able to be very successful to the point where, you know, now 15 years later, since I joined, I'm still in regular contact with my local colleagues and from my earlier assignments because of the, the depth of the relationship that we were able to create. Um, and it really just came from me showing up and, and doing what I know I was capable of doing, despite perceptions or stereotypes that people held about me. Um, and I think that my work has always spoken for itself. Um, and I've been fortunate in that sense. But as a female, like in a few, a few times, like I would walk into a meeting and then they would ask me, oh, um, you know, I would say I'm here for the meeting and they're like, oh, is your boss coming? Or they would be like, um, can I talk to the real American? Be you know, like I can, I'm thinking of times when I was doing consular work and I looked a little bit like the local population. So they assumed that I was a local, locally employed staff and didn't think that I was the American. And so, or they thought I was too young or they thought, you know, they didn't want to speak to me. They wanted to speak to someone who in their mind you know, when you think of the term manager to them, that might be a white male or a male, period. And it was me. And I'm like, no, you need to talk to me. I'm the boss. I'm the one who, you know, I'm standing between you and the thing that you want. So you're going to need to deal with me. And so it was kind of like an educational process for the people on the other side of the table from me. And it was also a lesson for me in patience and understanding and just trying not to take things personally because I know that it would have been probably a similar experience for anyone in my demographic, any female, any woman of color, anyone young. Um, and I don't know that everyone has had as easy a road. I mean, it wasn't always easy, but, and I still think like, you know, I deal with microaggressions all the time from male counterparts. You know, I can, I can tell like they all like to talk and mansplain sometimes and, and do what they do. And then when you start talking, you can see the eyes blazing over or, you know, they start to fidget and they don't really, you know, get the sense that they're not always hearing what I'm saying, even though they're listening. And I feel like there's a difference between hearing and listening. Um, and so that can also still be frustrating, but I just feel like I, to me, that's their problem. I don't feel like it's my job to, to not only do my job, but also to educate others, especially, I mean, it's 2020. But I, I'm not going to lie and act like, you know, everything is a level playing field and everyone is given the same opportunities. It's not the case. I still feel like women have to work harder. I feel like women have to work smarter. And we still end up somehow, you know, not getting the same level of recognition or appreciation that our male counterparts uh, get for doing much less than us. And that can be very frustrating. And I don't think that that's unique to diplomacy or unique to the international affairs and national security spaces. 
Um, but it's definitely something that I see as continuing to be a challenge. And as I continue to rise through the ranks, I don't necessarily see that getting any easier. I think the level of scrutiny that's placed on female leaders is much higher and it's a much harder standard to achieve than the standards that we place on men. I think we're quicker to forgive the actions of male leaders than we are to forgive the actions of females. I think we still look at women differently. Like, you know, you'll look at two leaders and, you know, one's a female, one's a male, and they could be saying literally the same thing, but the audience is hearing two different messages or what the audience is thinking about when they hear her speaking is what she's wearing versus when they hear from him, they're actually listening to his words. I feel like until we can get to the point where those things don't matter, I don't feel like women will ever really have the same path as their male counterparts. And I find that to still be a frustration. Azra had some great things to say on this topic. The question, um, the answer to the question really shifted at different points in my career. Um, when I came in to the Foreign Service in 1990, uh, my incoming class, you come in with a class sort of that, that goes through the training process uh, together and it creates a sense of esprit de corps. But our class was, uh, was nearly 50-50 men and women. And that was certainly not the norm for the State Department as a whole. It was uh, a reflection of uh, a changing demographic, but also um, a long-fought um, struggle on the part of female foreign service officers to demand uh, equitable personnel practices. In fact, there was a, a major class action suit that had been settled uh, in the years just before I joined that, that changed the nature of the Foreign Service entry process and the examination, which had been found to be uh, discriminatory uh, towards women, um, incoming women officers. So I came in, I would say, at a moment of change, but one in which the, you know, the entry level was maybe, uh, in theory, a level playing field, but as you moved up, you would see um, that 50-50 utterly diminish. Perhaps the most um, memorable kind of experience in terms of suddenly recognizing a difference with respect to gender was when I became pregnant and had my uh, first and second child. And then I was confronted with the reality of uh, the, United State, the United States being just one of a handful, I believe it's four countries in the world, uh, that do not have paid parental leave. Um, you know, this is an issue that is uh, certainly not unique to the diplomatic service. Um, it's something faced by working women in any uh, professional space uh, in the United States. But um, it wasn't just the, the lack of, uh, let's say, leave that, that was an issue, but I did find the differences in attitudes on and some of my male supervisors who, frankly, I think were from a different generation and one in which um, sort of their own biases came to the fore in, in that situation. You know, my own personal experience having my second child, my wonderful son, I, I actually, my own perception was I had a hostile response from um, the ambassador at the time and where I was made to feel that I had almost let down the team by taking uh, six weeks off to have a baby. <laughs> so that is certainly unacceptable. 
And uh, it's an experience from which I learned and that I would uh, learn from this negative example and never treat employees uh, that way and um, do my best to, to offer the support I could and, and, and support my team members taking the leave they needed at such an important point in their lives. I really also saw a drop-off, I would say, in terms of representation. Um, to this day, the senior foreign service uh, at the State Department is more than two-thirds men. Uh, now, compare that to that 50-50 when I came in in 1990. And, um, you know, you see that in the, uh, uh, you see that disparity with respect to top-level senior appointments. Um, You've seen that disparity gap grow uh, under the current administration. This phenomenon, I would say, is not confined to the diplomatic service, and it's something that I think we we all need to be mindful of and really um, take more of a concerted effort um, to look at what I would call accompaniment. Um, once you get past the entry level, you know, sort of, yeah, what, what I described in the uh, class action suit that, that changed the nature of the Foreign Service exam and the examination process to look um, over the longer term at why is it that you are seeing that disparity grow the higher up you go in the organization. Next, we asked a related question. I wondered, and I think that like the whole team here wondered as we were working on this on this particular episode, what positively distinguishes women as diplomats? Or is it possible that the way people pursue diplomacy is inherently gendered? Is that something that inherently corresponds to the way you're socialized as whatever gender you were assigned? Each of these women had some really great thoughts to share. Ozra had some particularly great points. Two uh, excellent questions. Um, in terms of the first one, what positively distinguishes women as diplomats? Uh, one, I, you know, I would say from the outset that I'm, I'm all about equality and equitable treatment. So, you know, I don't want to suggest that there are, you know, there is some inherent superiority that women have or that all women are the same. And because and sometimes I think by over-stereotyping, this is what, um, in effect, uh, limits opportunities for women. But all of that said, I would say from my own experience, um, three elements that I think are clear with respect to women diplomats. One, I think emotional intelligence is everything with respect to the conduct of diplomacy as I described it. You know, the art of listening, the art of persuasion, the art of compromise. So it isn't merely, um, you know, the knowledge of facts, which are quite important, you know, and, and being an effective diplomat, you've got to know your brief. And, and certainly the Foreign Service exam um, really emphasizes substantive knowledge and, um, you know, how you could apply that in a diplomatic career. But emotional intelligence, I think, is, is critical with respect to anticipating, understanding, and empathizing with the point of view of others. Um, so much of what diplomacy entails involves getting out of an us versus them mentality, um, out of a, a, of a frame that, that sees the other as something inherently um, adversarial or um, alien. 
So emotional intelligence and empathy are key. The, the final point I would make is the ability to compromise and to put the interests of a country, of an organization, um, of a common understanding above one's personal interests. And I think that sense of sacrifice is, is something you see in women's roles, whether it's the role within a family, uh, within a community, or within an organization. And I, I think it's, um, it's an inherently positive aspect of, of female leadership. I think there is a, there is a moment to really embrace feminine leadership. And feminine is a leadership qualities that, frankly, everyone should aspire to. Emotional intelligence, empathy, the ability to compromise. Um, one final piece I would put to that is, is, is to pursue the right path to do the right thing over what is most expedient. And um, I think all of those are, are qualities um, in which women... Um, excel but also that make more successful diplomacy so um your second question uh do i think the way people pursue diplomacy is inherently gendered that is an interesting one it is one i've, I've never been asked it, it really makes me think um i guess i would have to say that the 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 Status quo as it is in 2020, where we see a overwhelming um, uh, supermajority of positions occupied, frankly, by men uh, as opposed to women. But also, I think let's uh, put into the equation the quest questions of diversity and questions of, you know, at least in the American case, aspiring for diplomatic service that, that looks like America, that is not the case um, in this day and age. Um, a lot of work has been uh, expended towards making uh, the U.S. Foreign Service more diverse, and certainly there was a great deal of improvement uh, over the course of my career from a very low bar. But the simple fact is uh, the senior foreign service that I mentioned where the majority of, of ambassadors and, and senior officials are drawn is 89% white, which is also not representative of America as a whole. Um, so I think that status quo, uh, lack of diversity, lack of representation at the decision-making level does probably inherently gender diplomacy, although the practice itself, um, there simply is no bar and no reason why you cannot have more equitable representation. And in fact, there is a vast body of research to show that organizations that are more diverse um, groups, in fact, there was a, a well-known Harvard Business School study that found that in group dynamics and group decision-making, the more women you had in a group, um, the more uh, correct and impactful the decision-making would be. So while I would say the way people pursue diplomacy is, is gendered by the lack of representation at the senior decision-making level, it doesn't have to be that way, and it shouldn't be that way. Leah also gave us some good thoughts on how gender and diplomacy interact here. 
I actually think being a female diplomat has endeared me in different ways to different audiences that being a male, um, I don't think I would have had the same opportunities. For instance, I was able to kind of um, speak and engage with different audiences that would never have permitted a male to come in. Specifically, I'm thinking of dealing with youth or dealing with female groups or especially in, in societies that are kind of stratified across gender lines. Um, I'm able to kind of go to both groups, both the female groups and male groups, whereas my male counterparts really couldn't. They would either have to have a female liaison to enter into female spaces or they would have to you know, delegate work to a female colleague to do. And so I kind of feel like being a woman is definitely an advantage in many ways because people also don't expect similar things from me than they do from my male counterparts. So I'm able to go into meetings and even though I may be invisible to some, I'm listening and I'm hearing everything and I'm able to do stuff. And then, you know, as a result of what I've learned or the information that I've received and my male colleagues are always kind of taken to the side to have like sidebar conversations with different contacts, but I'm able to kind of work a room and move around more freely. And, and people are much more, I think being a woman kind of puts people more at ease. They just feel more comfortable with you. Um, and I feel like I've been able to kind of get more quickly to a level of understanding, a genuine, you know, understanding for other people, because I'm a female, I kind of feel like people just automatically are more comfortable with me. And so that's helped me when I'm trying to do listening to audiences to hear, you know, what do they need from us? How can we help them? And it helps me kind of get right to the point instead of having to go through various formal steps that many of my male colleagues have to go through because they don't have that same connection. There seems to still be some type, some type of barrier preventing them from, you know, making those genuine connections that I think for women, it just kind of comes naturally and inherently to us. I think that women are more intuitive in a lot of ways. And so I can kind of like, even on a subconscious or animal level, sense the feelings or the sentiment of the person across the table from me. And I can kind of negotiate and navigate those conversations and those interactions a little bit better. Um, I don't want to say that women are more emotionally intelligent than men, but I think in some ways we are because I just think it's kind of the way we're made. And I feel like that's been very instrumental in a lot of my success is that I've been able to kind of navigate and read a room immediately. And sometimes my male counterparts just haven't been able to do that. And it's been a real gift for me in that sense. And I also think, like I said, it's, it's an advantage because when there's only a few women in a room, I think that gives more power to our voice, even though I'm, I'm always a proponent of having more women at the table. I do feel like when the one, you know, if there's only a minority of any group at the table, sometimes that also gives more power to that voice. And I think if women use their voices, no matter the quantities of women are at the table, but if they use their voices for advocacy and for the work that they want to do, I think it can really have a lot of power and can move the needle on issues that if it was just the status quo, things wouldn't change much. Most people come into it with the same ideas and the same goals in mind in terms of wanting to make a difference, wanting to make genuine connections between people, wanting to build bridges, wanting to um, improve upon the things that have not worked in the past, trying to fix them. So I think like the intention behind why people get in is very similar. But I do think that as soon as you come through the doors, the paths that are available to you to kind of get getting to the point where you can achieve those objectives or work on those objectives are automatically different right from the beginning because of your gender. Um, so I guess, you know, the journey that you take once you're in the door, I do think is different. And I do think it's 
is somewhat based on gender. Um, it's also based on personal decision and, you know, your tolerance for certain things. So, I mean, I guess partially, yes, it is gendered. But I also think, though, that behind all of the the difference that's automatically placed on us, I do feel like the intentions are there and they're the same. We also wanted to give some time and space to talk about the various different organizations that um, that make diplomacy happen or the various organizations in which you can work as a diplomat. I know that often people who have either multiple citizenships or who have worked and lived very internationally in the past can have a lot of issues getting security clearances or getting approval for jobs with their various governments. Um, there are ways to get around that though. Um, and I think that's, what's really important in talking to these women about the various organizations with which they work is you don't just have to engage in diplomacy by working with a government organization. Ozra's path was pretty different. And I think that's really interesting. Sure. Well, maybe I'll, I'll, I'd love to tell you a little bit more about the organization. I, I lead the Alliance for Peace Building. And um, first in that it is unique in that it is a network model. So, you know, we are uh, an alliance of 120 plus organizations working all over the world, very dynamic, very diverse. Um, most of our members are non-governmental organizations, um, but really all shapes and sizes. Uh, we have a core of grassroots members who you know, organizations under 10 people, you know, modest budgets, you know, working in one country on one issue set to, um, to, move, the ne- to move the needle in, in terms of either helping societies recover from conflict, uh, preventing, government, uh, preventing violent conflicts from occurring or mitigating violent conflicts when they are um, in full flower. And what makes it unique, I would say, is this multi-stakeholder model of cooperation, which in my personal view, it really is the way forward for the future in terms of taking on um, grave global challenges, but also seizing opportunities. Um, you know, climate change, I think, would be the perfect example of this, where, um, yes, it is critical to have governments come forward to reach uh, traditional accords and agreements, such as, you know, the COP21 Paris Accord of 2015. But having these agreements at the governmental level is simply not enough. What occurred in 2015 was actually a multi-stakeholder, a multi-layered effort where you had hundreds of private sector companies, American and multinational, European and otherwise, uh, make billions of dollars worth of commitments in terms of reducing their carbon footprints. You also had very important progress at the subnational level. You know, the uh, 40 plus cities initiative, the 40 largest cities in the world, including New York, Paris, LA, others, making their own commitments, which, you know, in the context of the Paris Accord and the positions of the current administration rejecting climate change as a scientific fact, these subnational accords have proven critical in terms of minimizing minimizing the damage caused by a U.S. federal pullout while you have uh, other actors like the state of California 
which would be you know one of the top ten economies in the world by GDP, um, continuing to move forward. So to me, this multi-stakeholder model it, it really is the way forward for the future, where you know it's kind of governments plus governments and civil society, governments and the private sector working on multiple levels and common cause uh, to really generate systems shifts uh, in terms of approaches and outcomes. So, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, my decision to leave government, I, I did leave uh, the State Department in 2018, and it was a personal decision, um, you know, in response to a number of decisions taken by the current U.S. administration, where I could, felt as though I could no longer do good as I defined it, uh, remaining in government service. And I wanted to um, find a cause and an organization that I believed in and that I could uh, put my experience and my optimism behind. And I, and I found that with the Alliance for Peacebuilding. And, and maybe that's a bit of a concluding point, Nina. I mean, I think that in terms of you know, the aspirations uh, towards helping to build a more just and peaceful world that motivated me to join the diplomatic service, uh, I would still encourage um, your listeners and, and particularly young women who might be listening to this podcast to, to consider pursuing diplomacy as a career. But I would also say that's not the only track or channel where you can affect that kind of positive change. And within non-governmental organizations, uh, within civil society, but also within the private sector, you know, this multi-stakeholder model, uh, it's hard to find an issue where you do not have that uh, constellation of actors having influence and impact. I would invite uh, any of your listeners to consider joining the Alliance for Peacebuilding. Uh, we we are, are both a network of organizations, but also individuals. So we have... Um, uh, thousands of individuals who are part of our network as well and you can join as a young professional or student and um, there's an online application and it gives you sort of access to our happenings uh, events and convenings that we do many of which are online and um, we do an amazing annual gathering called PeaceCon that will be taking place uh, this December in Washington December 7th to the 9th and it really brings together um, just the leaders of the field, but also policymakers, philanthropists, uh, academic. It's, it's a very dynamic and an uplifting uh, experience. Yeah, and so you can find out more about us at www.allianceforpeacebuilding, all one word, .org, or um, our Twitter handle is uh, at AFPeacebuilding. Finally, as always, we closed by asking, what advice do you have for women who are interested in diplomacy as a career? Uzra started us off. My advice would be go for it. <laughs> Don't hold back. Um, I think diplomacy by reputation seems uh, uh, something exclusive, maybe even exclusionary and challenging. Don't, don't let any of that deter you uh, from pursuing it. Um, the other advice would be get involved. You know, get involved in organizations uh, like mine, the Alliance for Peacebuilding, or any other number of um, non-governmental actors who are doing terrific work 
to inform the public, but also to advocate for, for policies that ultimately work towards supporting, you know, a more just, peaceful, inclusive, sustainable world. I think, um, you know, doing your homework is key. So, you know, the kind of study that, that you're pursuing, Nina, is, is exemplary in terms of, you know, really knowing your brief and your field and okay. from my own <laughs> personal experience also nothing beats getting out to those countries and seeing for yourself and engaging. I mean, if you, if you think about it, if you want to be an expert on a country, you know, go there, learn it, know it, befriend uh, people. And, and, and it's, it's a marvelously um, personally enriching experience as well. Not everything has to just be uh, work, work, work. You need to have that North Star, you know, what is your guiding motivation and, and stay true to that. And, and part of that is you can, you can do it in many, many different roles. And, you know, one of the exciting aspects of the American Foreign Service is that it is open to individuals really from, from all different professional backgrounds. You might think that you need to pursue that classic track that I did, you know, going into international affairs, you know, as an academic pursuit as a, at a young age and studying abroad and, and all of that. And that certainly is, um, you know, I would say a typical profile, but there, there really are individuals with all kinds of different professional experiences. And our, the U.S. Foreign Service is rather unique in that it takes uh, candidates between the ages of 20 and 59 and a half. No kidding. I've, I haven't found any diplomatic service quite that extensive in the range of age uh, that it accepts. And, and that means that you have people, um, you know, second career, third career, uh, really coming from all different walks of life and in many different ways that you can gain international experience, and including through, you know, vitally important what I would call field work on the behalf of NGOs or doing uh, vital research um, at the uh, university level. So um, I wouldn't feel for any of your listeners that it's something, an opportunity that might come just one point at their lifetime. There are many different points where you might choose to pursue it, at least, at least in the American context. I think you could learn such a great deal from, from traveling, but a lot of that, it also involves getting outside of your comfort zone. And, you know, my, my, First experience living abroad as a as a nineteen year old in Cairo, Egypt. Um, yeah, there were many moments of discomfort, frankly. You know, where you where you are an outsider and an outlier, and you don't speak the the local language fluently. Oh, that's one more point: language study. I'm a I'm a huge proponent. I think that's it is a critical element of of being a diplomat, and it's you know it's sort of. Um, we live in a world where, you know, English is, uh, you know, broadly spoken all over the world, but you've got to make that effort, I think, you know, particularly speaking from an American perspective, to, to embrace and, um, and learn uh, other cultures through language. Leah made some really excellent points. My advice would be to pursue it, go for it, try it, um, enter into the field. There's plenty of space and room for you. Every voice matters. Every perspective is important. Every experience has value. Um, don't be 
uh, discouraged if you don't see a lot of others like you in the room. There won't be others like you if you yourself don't enter. Um, and there are women waiting for you. We're holding space for you. We're holding the door open for you. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity for growth professionally, personally, um, in this lifestyle and in this career. And as I said, I mean, the more voices that are brought to the table, I feel like the better the outcomes can be. Um, if you only have one type of person negotiating, you're only going to get one type of outcome. And that outcome may not necessarily be the most appropriate one. But if you have a diversity of perspectives at the table, then the outcome will probably be much better because it will take into consideration things that one perspective alone would never have brought to bear. So I think that women should totally go for it. Don't be afraid um, to, to put yourself out there, stretch yourself. Um, it's not an easy career field by any stretch of the imagination. You have to be strong in character. You have to be confident in yourself and have a good support network because, you know, being a diplomat from any country, you're separated from your your family and social ties. You're separated from your, you know, your home. You're separated from things that are familiar and you have to be able to deal with distance, you know, thank God for social media and things like that, but it's not the same. You are going to miss out on some of those important milestones like friends' graduations and weddings and babies being born and funerals and graduations and things like that. But it it's not it's not all bad. I mean, you give you also give your friends and family an opportunity to travel, to do something different. You get to live this exciting life. You get to see the world and really make a difference. And I feel like if that's what motivates you, then this career field should be something that you certainly consider. And as I said earlier, there's a lot of opportunity for growth and there's a, there's a void. And I feel like women need to rush and flood the field and fill that void. Well, that brings us to the end of our episode today. I hope that this was really helpful for people and a really enjoyable episode for people. Um, this is one that came from a reader request and Along those lines, if you have an episode you'd like to hear, if you have a person you'd like to see interviewed, if you have um, burning questions that you would like to ask or have asked for you, please reach out. Um, we're available on Instagram. Um, our Twitter handles are accessible. Um, we would love to hear from you by email or any other way that you find to get in contact with us. We are really happy to talk about future episodes of the podcast because ultimately we want to be making a podcast that people want to hear. With that, uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on whatever podcast app you use. This helps other people find us by raising us up in the rankings, and it is one of the most helpful things you can do. Um, if you feel like you want to share a link to the podcast on your own social media with your own networks, that's also really helpful. While you're at it, please subscribe to the Women in Foreign Policy newsletter, which is available on our website. If you have any thoughts, anyone you want us to interview, anything like that, please, please reach out through that method as well. Uh, you can follow the organization's Twitter at WomenInFP. And if the work we're doing means a lot to you, please consider supporting us via PayPal at Lucy Goulet. That's L-U-C-I-E-G-O-U-L-E-T. Or on Patreon at Women in Foreign Policy. We are an all-volunteer team, so it means your support goes even further. We love the work we do, and we couldn't do it without listeners like you. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you again next month. Bye!